0: Welcome to Series 2 of Assembly Point, a monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. Following a successful first series, Assembly Point provides a collective space in which industry leaders can explore the most pressing issues in fire safety and share expert information and advice. Please be aware that the views expressed by guests in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the FBA. We hope you enjoy this episode of Assembly Point.
1: Hello and welcome to the Fire Protection Association's Assembly Point podcast. Um, I'm Jonathan O'Neill, I'm Managing Director at the FPA and today I'm joined by Chris Miles, the Regional Business Director for Underwriters Laboratories' Built Environment Business. Chris, thanks for joining me today to explore building safety and what we can learn from the global world of fire testing in the UK. And obviously it's not long since we last saw each other, as we were both together at FireX last week in London. It was a great opportunity, of course, to meet with our members, customers and the wider fire safety sector again. I, mean, it, I thought it was a very, very positive event for, for, certainly from, from FBA's perspective and to get the sector together. I mean what, we, what was your feelings and feedback of the event, Chris?
0: Yeah, hi John. Um, yeah, it was it was super to see so many people in, in real life after what seems like so long without such events. It, it felt like the ability to properly discuss issues that, that were facing the industry was now kind of back on track. And even though, yeah, I know discussions have been ongoing through the pandemic years, it's clear that there's still a, a lot of fire safety issues facing the country that are still there. And still need kind of clear paths forward, so that we can get to some some resolutions. Firex strangely seemed to hit that home to me with all the presentations that were going on and all the discussions we had. Um, yeah, there's there's still a lot to get done.
1: A, a loads to get done. You know, five years on from Grenfell Tower, and you know, going back to Judith Hackett's initial report, she clearly identified in her independent review of the building regulations and, and the fire safety, there was a need for a clear, more transparent and more effective specification and testing regime for construction products. Now we've seen the Building Safety Act, it's now received Royal Assent. Do you think we're achieving this?
0: Um, yeah, well, firstly, five years, how quickly is, has that gone? Um, it's frightening. And and frankly, no, I, I'm, I'm not sure we really have moved That much closer to the to the ideal system um, for construction products at at least from a fire safety perspective. I was involved in the data gathering process for that uh, government-sponsored research into the topic of of the testing regime conducted by Paul Morell, and and this was supposed to be complete and an issue by now but it seems like that that might never see the the light of day. Uh, I was very hopeful that that would provide a direction for for change for the for the testing regime yeah th- there are some things moving but but still without without conclusion i mean that we've got the code for construction product information ccpi which should help organizations drive higher standards at least in the presentation of, of product information and and that was something that the Hackett report recommended the expectation from that code is 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 for construction products to be supported by I think clear, accurate, up-to-date, accessible and unambiguous information and that would be a big step in the right direction. I know it's delayed but yeah it, it's going in the right way. Competence I think is still a big issue within the construction sector and while there have been many many hours talked about developing a set of criteria and conditions they've still not been embedded into, into any sort of requirement within the, within the industry. Many organisations, including the, the Association for Specialist Fire Protection, for which I'm, I'm currently chair, have developed and operate training now and provide qualifications in fire safety. And they're a major boost now, a major asset for people to get the skills and knowledge needed, but they're not compulsory and not a minimum level or, or embedded into the industry. I also think, um, I mean, post Grenfell we've had Brexit and I'd, I had hoped that would provide us with some sort of opportunity to be more focused on the GB requirements at least, if not, if not Northern Ireland and provide government with the opportunity for better governance of construction products but so far we've retained the European system and actually added additional burdens for industry, such as the UKCA market, which, which had little if any technical value. I, I think that's a, a missed opportunity. You mentioned as Hackett did a clearer, more transparent, more effective specification testing regime. So far, I'd say we're not really there. I know the government intends to get there, seems to have, um, seems to have not progressed enough at this stage, and and just before we finish on on that, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto it later on, but Dame Judith mentioned the need to be transparent with test results, uh, expecting that this would close some some gaps in in what's used in the market, providing safer products, and as someone who's spent nearly all of my my working life in and around test facilities, I, I don't see that as a way to solve the concerns over a, a more robust testing regime publishing failed results isn't isn't the solution that there, there's better ways of of doing that
1: we'll come on to that I, and, and, and i'm really fascinated to, to 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 hear your comments about you know where where you are and, and particularly where asfp think th- think this how the situation lies at the moment but do you think how much of that do you think is down to a misunderstanding from the civil servants over the three government departments of how, this, how the system currently works and how it should operate in the future. Have they consulted industry enough?
0: I, I think recently, John, I've, I've seen that process starting to take hold. They, they run some regular workshops now and trying to get feedback from them. As I say, they o, OPSS do at least, that I've seen. I, I, I firmly believe there's a, there's a desire for them to do good things and to to do it properly i'm not sure the structure of the civil service really helps that clearly they need some guidance but i don't know that they listen enough and are willing to accept the the guidance that, that's offered for them i think i think there's more that we could do to work together i mean between industry and and the government departments to to look at fire safety and take on board some of the recommendations.
1: How much do you think the industry is waiting for the government to act? I mean, Hackett was very, very clear that actually the solutions lie within the industry itself. Do you think the industry should be taking a far more proactive approach and actually getting on the front foot and telling government what what needs to be done?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, yes. But it, it's so and Hackett pointed this out and I remember towards the back of the report there's a, there's a, a, a chart showing all of the bodies and organizations involved and it, it, it's, it's a minefield. Um, we're so disparate, the construction industry is so disparate that to expect it to come together and sort itself out is, is really probably a best a best naive. It needs a driver to do that and we all hoped that the Building Safety Act would, would be that driver, and it, and it may yet be, but it's taken too long to, to bring to fruition. I would like industry to be doing more itself, but but it, it's perhaps too much to expect for that to, to happen.
1: So, obviously, which we've talked about testing. What we haven't talked about is certification, independent third-party certification. Clearly, the government are still to be convinced that it needs to be made mandatory, where is the industry in actually taking forward independent third-party certification itself
0: well certainly bodies like the FIA and like the like the ASFP recommend or insist on third-party certification of products and in some cases installers when they're involved with with fire safety products but that, that's not embedded deeply enough in, into the industry. The construction side of the industry needs needs to embrace that. I know there's discussion about it, but I thought the, 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 the adoption of a building safety manager in conjunction with the building safety regulator as part of the chain of approvals was a great step forward towards improving the, the flawed system as it's described. But, but that building safety manager has now been withdrawn. To me, that's a backward step. And, and I wonder if it's actually in the, in the resident's interest either. Just looking specifically at certification, and, and UL has been a certification body for, for well over a hundred years. And I'm working for UL uh, as I do, I'm bound to say that I'm a firm believer in the benefits of third party certification, but I, but I really am. If I can maybe just explain why, we've seen that the information that's used to support products placed on the market can be misused that's that's now without doubt and it harks back to the to that recommendation for a for a more transparent system of testing both of those types of concerns can be addressed and removed by using third party certification for for products that would introduce uh, the involvement of an independent body such as UL in the whole process of getting products to market from from manufacturer to installation and possibly beyond, possibly into into ongoing maintenance, I'm kind of at a loss to understand why government hasn't yet grasped those benefits. And and actually in a, in a especially in a post Brexit environment where we meant to be taking back control. The certification, similarly, the certification of installers of fire safety products would provide a significant step forward for for the overall system and ensure that certificated products are not undermined by by incorrect installation. But But I've got to add that certification for products and installers has to be at the right level and a a consistent level and shouldn't be an easy bar to, to get over. It shouldn't be done based on a commercial need. It should be a technical need. And that means there's got to be some sacrifices by the parties involved in order to get to the required quality level. And I actually believe those levels should be set by government and not open to individual conformity assessment bodies to set out our own requirements. I think that's really easy for government to, to get done. I think there's a will to do it within the conformity assessment bodies. And if government would engage with us, I think it will, they'd be pushing at an open door.
1: In, as you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in third part, independent third-party certification and always have been. The, the insurers, as you know, have been specifying independent third-party certification products and services for very, very many years. But I wonder, have the, has the industry done enough to convince the enforcing authorities, the new building safety regulator, building control, fire and rescue services, and the specifying uh, uh, specifiers, the consulting engineers, the architects, the building owners of the benefits of third-party certification, and their, their, their compliance with legislation if they go down that route?
0: I mean, clearly we, we've not done enough um, because because it's not been taken up yet and not, not adopted. As, your question is, can we do more f- for sure? But I think it goes back to, do people want to listen? Do people want to embrace that higher level? I think in some cases that that makes making a building, um, putting a building up, that makes it more difficult, probably more costly. So there's, a, there's you can understand why people don't really want to adopt it unless there's a, a, a firm requirement. The firm requirement, I suppose, is that we put safe buildings up. but again, the, the disparate nature of the construction industry, people not really wanting to listen, all of these, all of these things kind of don't help the adoption of, of certification across the board, unfortunately.
1: Uh, no, I, 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 I do agree with you, but I do think that there's more we, we need to do to to, to to convince the other stakeholders in the process of the benefits. Of such,
0: the such as such as what, John? What what could be what could be done?
1: Well, I, if, if I look at some of the activities of, of the organisations, such as Bay, for example, whenever they see a tender going out that, that involves schemes that they're involved with. They get involved, they, they get in touch with the, uh, the, the, the the tenderer and say, actually, do you know what? They're, why aren't you specifying third party certificated products here? And more often than not, they have success in actually making sure that that is a requirement for the tender going forward. And I wonder whether the certification bodies um, and the, the trade associations could do more in that region to start to convince. And we would start to see third party certification being specified as the norm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
1: Possibility. I mean, obviously, we've looked uh, a little bit about what's happened in the UK, but obviously from UL's massive international experience, you know, you're working with the international building codes, which require listing. You know, do you think there is an opportunity for us to learn from the international experience that you guys have got? and bring those systems into the uk and if so you know what would be what would you would be changed from from the from the systems that we have at the moment
0: yeah so you're correct i have worked for ul and and we've been involved in product certification as i said for 100 years and headquartered out of the usa although now a global organization deeply involved in in the codes in in north america including the International Building Code, the IBC, as as you said, and 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 many of those codes in North America require what they refer to to as listings, T- to us that means certification of the product. It's convenient to say listings, and and there's absolutely no doubt, John, that, that there are aspects of of some international practices which in the UK we could learn from, we could use to provide a more robust system for, for construction, especially for for fire safety. It's a requirement in the in the IBC, the International Building Code, that fire safety products are certificated, are, are listed. And and that brings many of the advantages we, we talked about before. It requires the involvement from start to finish of an independent body, such as UL, to to oversee the production of the test samples. So what you actually test it requires the involvement that we check on factory production Um, and and UL does that as a minimum of four times a year as unannounced visits to the the place of production. The listing of that product or system includes the scope of use and in doing so the limitations of use. It's a critical part of the certification that test evidence that supports that scope is conducted under the control of the certification body. Prevents a manufacturer from testing and testing and testing until the result is acceptable, and then using only the successful test result. If UL wasn't involved in the sampling of the test samples or in the subsequent testing, the results of that test can't can't be used in the certification of the product. So so that addresses Dame Judith's comment about the need for publication of all test data. We've seen a Big uptake of requests for test reports since Grenfell, but I think that misses the point raised in in building a safer future report, because sponsors can still keep testing until an acceptable result is achieved, and then just use that one report. Product certification, as required by the IBC, doesn't encourage the use of test reports in in isolation. Testing is a is is a means. For the certification bodies to get data on the product when it's tested, it's a means to an end, not the end in itself. So I think just that one simple thing, adoption of certification, as done by the IBC, would be a big step forward to to address many of Dame Judith's points on, on the testing regime, tidy up, so to speak.
1: Some of the criticisms that we've seen come out post Grenfell around standards and how we put those test specifications together have been about the dominance of, uh, of certain sectors within, within, in test, within those standards committees. My understanding is that internationally and particularly in the United States, there is a, 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 a requirement to have a balance within the within the, uh, the, the the committee structure. Do you think we would benefit from that in the in the UK, particularly involving stakeholders who, possible on the periphery at the moment, um, and would possibly see the benefits of testing and third party certification if they were more engaged in the process?
0: Within within North America, there is a number of standards writing bodies, um, not not just like we have in the UK one under bsi and ul is one of those standards writing bodies so we write standards generally test standards and i've seen it firsthand john when we have what we call a standards technical panel stp uh, that we have to maintain that balance um, actually it's a ul standard but ul gets one position on that or one vote on that on that technical panel and that's balanced by other certification bodies or test bodies and I've had many many requests from our customers manufacturers generally to get on the standards technical panels and unless there's a balance by somebody that's not a manufacturer so from from another stakeholder sector they, they can't get on and, and they might be our best customer but unless they're it's balanced they, they aren't allowed onto the STP and an adoption of something like that would would address that that bias that often often occurs because big manufacturers are able to support such activity and and small bodies like i don't know residents organization for instance don't have the resources to to spend on on such committees and and as a result the document can get can get skewed Hopefully, you know, we, 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 with
1: practices changing as they have post-post uh, COVID, and more meetings online, and uh, and it's not having to physically be British Standards Committee meetings. Maybe there is an opportunity for British Standards to to, to, to look at its uh, at the makeup of uh, of its committee structure going forward, and we, we we could start to see maybe a mirroring of the situation that you've got in the states, and I think that would lead to a far more transparent. System, and I think you know, and, and address many of the issues that, that Dame Judith um, raised in in her in her initial report.
0: Yeah, I I agree, but but that's really for for as far as standards writing goes, and the regulations are probably a different animal and organised in a different way. But there's for sure um, things that we can learn about. Um, how to produce our regulations how to maintain and and critically how to change them when we need to when we see an event like like Grenfell, our, our regulations still haven't changed massively apart from one or two areas um, yet if it was the international building code it would have been rewritten a number of times already probably and that's in,
1: it's interesting because that brings me to to, to 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 another point you know we we've talked about modern methods of construction of the highly engineered approach that we're seeing to construction these days. How do you think third-party certification can actually um, be be brought in to the finished built environment? Do you think it's got a role to play?
0: It's definitely got a a role to play. And and sure, with the the green agenda and the drive still for cost-effective builds, that requires materials and systems and methods which different from what what we're used to. When it comes to dealing with fire events, we're faced with new requirements in in preventing spread within buildings and between buildings. And I do worry about the firefighters when they go to these types of buildings that are perhaps used to dealing with traditional materials and methods. And those, those highly engineered buildings for sure present many new challenges across our current processes if we look at modular buildings for instance designed to be built offsite and craned in and fixed together for for speed on site there's numerous consp- concealed spaces in in there which are heavily reliant upon barriers within within those cavities there are products which are designed to work in those situations but the inspection regime the overall governance of the build offsite and when it comes two side it, it isn't ideal it doesn't provide a robust end state building i think in many cases especially during the the construction phase and probably applies in the in the occupation stage as well so the inspection and certification of a final building the whole building is probably something that we would benefit from i know it's an additional burden on industry and a cost and probably slows up the whole process but it's important I I would hate to see one of these buildings resulting in in some type of Grenfell but but for modern methods of construction the, the the drive for deregulation over years perhaps with the best intentions certainly hasn't helped create a system to be the best we possibly can and I think that comes down to, to not having a, a lead authority in, in quality and construction. Maybe the building safety regulator can help with that. I don't know that they can be a, be a lead body to show what good practice should be. Insurers have a part to play as well, I think. And I know, again, they've got the best intentions, but as a driver, perhaps they, they could help us more.
1: I certainly think there's a lot of interest from the insurance industry, and, and and maybe we can learn something from from the international building codes, particularly with modern methods of construction. As you quite rightly point out, you know five years since Grenfell, and we still haven't had much change to our building regulations. And if we are in a situation where where we are struggling to keep up with modern methods of construction, maybe we should, as that happens in other countries, rely on codes such as the International Building Code, which is renewed regularly and does look at modern methods of construction um, on a a regular basis and puts in sensible controls um, for, 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 for those building methods. Chris, Thank you very much for your time today. It's been really, really valuable. Your, your insights um, from uh, an ASFP perspective and from, and from ULs, really, really interesting and, 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 and stimulating an awful lot of debate at the moment. Um, I'm now going to hand over to Howard Passy and Marcus Reese, and they're going to have a discussion on the value of a fire strategy when it comes to building safety. Chris, thank you very much.
2: Thanks, John. Uh, And Chris, that was a really interesting discussion. Hello, I'm Howard Passy, Director of Operations at the FPA. And for the second part of today's podcast, we will be looking at the benefit offered by a fire strategy when designing, constructing, refurbishing or managing a premises fire safety. I'm joined today by Marcus Rees, the FPA's lead on fire strategy. Marcus, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you taking time out of a very busy schedule. As we know a fire strategy can be seen as serving a multitude of functions. It should be fundamental to the day-to-day management of fire safety and premises and needs to be specifically tailored to the building. Looking at approved document B there's plenty of guidance that will deliver a compliant building. The guidance is performance based and achieving equivalence to the functional requirements should deliver a reasonable level of fire safety fire safety legislation such as the regulatory reform fire safety order in England and Wales and similar legislation in Scotland and Northern Ireland requires arrangements to be made and a fire risk assessment to be carried out so the, the question is does meeting both or either of these requirements deliver a fire
3: strategy well thanks for having me Howard firstly yeah interesting question simply put no it doesn't Obviously, it is correct that you have to complete a suitable and sufficient fire risk assessment to satisfy the Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order. The fire strategy is the overarching document that sets the foundation for ongoing fire risk assessments, um, any consultation works, any building refurbishments. What it does is it, it removes the requirement to go back to first principles every time you want to do something to that building. So you've got your baseline information that you can always refer back to. As as an example, if we look at the means of escape in a building, you know, the fire strategy is there to to sort of detail the means of escape that are going to be used by all the occupants. The the maximum capacities, stairway widths, stairway heights, how many people can use those stairways, and any works that are carried out to that building. Need to take into consideration these arrangements.
2: so so those decisions are made during the design of the building Is, is, is that right? That's what you're saying in terms of occupancy numbers and um, capacities for staircases and such like.
3: Yeah, I, I mean as you know there's there's two types of fire strategies that we can we can develop would be a design phase fire strategy which goes through multiple stages of approval. or secondly, once a building's already constructed, then we can do what we call an as-built fire strategy or as-built fire safety strategy which would look at an existing building which is a little bit tricky in that we need to look at the history of that building in order to understand why it was built the way it was obviously when you've got a 200 year old building you're trying to find out the construction date and sort of the rationale behind the existing design that is it, it takes a lot of work um, and a lot of investigation and you sometimes feel like a historian when you're Scrolling through those documentation, but, but yeah, that's that's the different types of fire strategy we can deliver.
2: Okay. So you're almost, I suppose, with that retrospective or as built, you're almost reverse engineering the building to a certain degree.
3: Essentially, yeah. Yeah, you're, you know, you're trying to ascertain why the designers and the developers have, have gone the route that they have. Scrolling through a lot of repealed information, documentation that would have been Relevant at the time of construction, but not necessarily making sense right now. So yeah, you know, current current methods we look at sprinkler system design, but 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago, there was a different rationale behind installing the system in such an a, in an area or a high risk area. Um, mm-hmm. So we're trying to bring old car, old standards in line with current standards.
2: Okay, well that does bring me on very nicely to the next question, uh, which is really about the information requirements, I suppose, to a certain degree. Uh, We know that within the the current building regulations, they require contractors to provide fire safety information to their clients post-construction. And I'm thinking here of, of, of Regulation 38, for example. However, in my experience, not necessarily doing fire strategy work, but certainly with fire risk assessments, this information is is rarely available, or if it is available, it's not in a usable format. However, there is little advice available to the likes of of you and I as to how such information is collated and presented. And if we don't know how it's meant to work, then I presume that the contractors might also struggle in terms of understanding how to present that information in in, in, in a usable way. Given that this will apply to the vast majority of the built environment, is it possible to pull construction information and fire risk assessment findings together to form a fire strategy? And, and if so, what what kind of process do you go through?
3: Again, this you know it is a misconception that pulling bits of information that already exist into a a document essentially will create a fire strategy, but that's not the case. I mean. You know, you mentioned Regulation 38 and and that's, that's been around since, you know, the approved documents and it's very rare that we find the required information and you, the fire risk assessment and, you know, the construction information and the management information for that building, it all goes towards forming that sort of end user as built fire strategy or retrospective fire strategy as we refer to it sometimes. But it's not as straightforward as just paper clipping that information together and sort of passing it on to the end building user. There's, there's a lot of steps that need to be considered um, and, and taken. And, you know, as we, as we mentioned just now about looking for historical information about these buildings, a lot of the time it doesn't exist. So, you know, we want to provide the client with accurate up to date information but unfortunately it's it's really difficult to get that last week we saw the you know the introduction of the
2: the building safety act do you think we'll see any difference in the information provided by contractors as a result of the the new requirements in in that piece of legislation
3: yeah I, i'd like to think so you know since the development of these these new acts and the Hackett review. The golden thread of information has been, you know, sort of out there in, in the industry and is going to be the benchmark for, for retaining and, and managing that information. And it's it's a step further than the Regulation 38 where, yeah, people understood that it was a requirement to have that information, but there was no sort of consequence for not having it. And I think the golden thread gives the industry and, and the wider building industry the opportunity to, you know, enforce this, put the responsibility onto the the building responsible person or relevant person, and make them accountable for that information. And I think that's you know that's a really important takeaway.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think that might provide what we would recognise as a fire strategy? Then do you think it will be formed in in such a way?
3: No, I think there's. You know, there's a multitude of places that this information can be retained and, and different formats, you know, such as the safety case, through the fire risk assessment process, you know, building management systems. There's, there's a lot of areas where, where this information can be retained, but it's got to be digital.
2: Moving on and just thinking a little bit now about the, the strategy content. I know we've talked a bit about the sort of the process and the difficulties there might be in assessing the right information certainly when doing retrospective work but when speaking with local fire and rescue services they indicated that without a compartmentation strategy it would not be possible to complete a suitable and sufficient fire risk assessment for certain types of premises does a compartmentation strategy deliver the same information as a fire strategy
3: no again that's another misconception that we're finding, you know, when you go to site and you ask for the fire strategy, you sometimes get a plan of the building which has got some red lines or blue lines marked on it and they say we'll ask you fire strategy and It's not that's that's a very small subsection of a fire strategy Yes, it's great to have a compartmentation strategy and absolutely a fire risk assessment can't be considered suitable as sufficient without considering compartmentation and, how fire is going to spread through through the building. But no, it, it doesn't form a fire strategy. It does form part of it. I think maybe one out of 10 sites would have that information available. So what we usually have to do is when we arrive at the site, we get planned drawings if they're available, mark up the, the lines of compartmentation against the relevant guidance or, or documentation that we're referring to, whether it be ADB or BB100 or double nine, double nine, and then that would form a subsection in place.
2: Okay, so so looking beyond, I suppose those those functional requirements within within approved document B. I presume that moving through the strategy, you've then got to consider things like how the building's going to be managed, maintenance requirements evacuation
3: procedures and those sorts of things as well is that right you do you're correct you've got you know the fire evacuation procedure that's relevant to that building um, or set of buildings where we've got three or four interconnecting buildings for instance they may have various fire evacuation procedures and then we need to come up with an overarching strategy that would bring those together to ensure that should a fire breach a compartment wall into the neighboring building then they can be evacuated safely also management of a building extremely important again that's another subsection things like a gap analysis where we look at this is the standard from where the building was you know designed this is the standard of the day today, where the gap is in the middle and, and actions need to be raised the gap analysis would provide an overview of over those actions
2: okay that makes a lot of sense i suppose because I think you're more than likely you know as we find with most fire risk assessments you're always going to find things that you maybe are not content with or potentially that the you know the the building owner or occupier has a has their own design criteria in mind in terms of an evacuation strategy so i suppose that in pulling the strategy together you can offer them the benefit of explaining what they need to change in order to get to where they to get to where they want to be. I think it's fairly evident that bringing all of that information together is at least going to give you that you know, one-stop spot to go to for anything fire safety related and you'll always have something which describes exactly what's meant to be happening at any particular point in time certainly with regard to systems maintenance and, and, and such like. But, do you, think, do you think it brings other benefits further down the
3: line for the, the building owner and occupier? Yeah, I think it creates an opportunity for that building to be managed effectively. One of the most significant issues that I seem to come across is refurbishment and alteration of buildings. Now, you know, plans are provided, the contractors move in, and that's it, it's demolition derby time. But mm. the reality is that, you know, we need to maintain these buildings to the to the standard that they've been designed to whether that be structural fire resistance whether it be you know uh, load bearing non load bearing walls fire stopping compartmentation breaching compartment floors all of these factors are reducing the integrity of that building or the overall performance that that building is designed to provide so, by, by giving this information to the to the responsible person, it's giving them an overview of what their building should be doing and how that should be managed moving forward.
2: Okay. So, if they punch a hole in a floor, they'll know what fire resistance the floor is meant to achieve, or if they're extending the building, they'll know yeah. what standard of fire alarm system or category of fire alarm system they have to achieve. To, exactly. You know, to suit the existing strategy. Okay, obviously, Talking about legislation, building regulations, regulatory reform, fire safety order, and, and such like, their you know their primary focus is on life safety, and and quite rightly so. However, I know that some research um, undertaken by Risk Authority, that that is administered by the FPA, found that over a ten-year period, the average large loss for fires in the UK was a little over six hundred and fifty thousand pounds per incident which seems a huge amount and we also recognize the devastating effects that uh, a fire can have on individuals can have on communities through the loss of a workplace or a community facility such as a school is there a mechanism whereby we can guide against this ensuring better protection is afforded to property and business through the fire strategy and if so how would we go about that
3: Yeah, I I think you're right, and that's a shocking figure. When when we're carrying out our our as-built fire strategies, I know the the primary focus has always been life safety, but we do work towards property protection and insurers' requirements in addition to those life safety requirements. And I think, you know, you've mentioned schools, which is a really important factor. Obviously, the, the, the building bulletin has moved towards any new building, any new school building or extension to a school has to be sprinkler protected um, following the risk assessment and cost benefit analysis. So th- there is an emphasis on property protection and working within the, you know, the fire strategy sort of sector. That's where we need to be focused as well as, um, as life safety, because as you said, it's, it's not only financial implications, it's you know, there's sentimental value to people's personal belongings or to a property or where we find historical buildings. There's, you know, there have been salvage plans in place which mm-hmm. supplemented insurers' requirements. And, you know, we're moving towards compartmentation, enhancement of compartmentation or or active fire safety systems in order to protect those valuable assets. Or I think there's there's a lot of ways that we could move to look at property protection. But I don't think there's, there is a, a simple answer without looking at cost implications.
2: Okay, well, thanks very much, Marcus. Again, for taking some time out of a, of a busy schedule to, to, to join me on the podcast today and for sharing some, some really interesting thoughts and insights. Thanks very much. No, I appreciate that, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. To avoid missing out on future episodes, hit the subscribe button. To listen to previous episodes of Assembly Point, or for more guidance and resources on reducing the risks of fire, please visit thefpa.co.uk.